0: Jai Jai Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jaya Dvaita Chandra Jaya Welcome, today we want to uh, speak about Buddhism. Uh, we see in the Chaitanya Charitamrita when Lord Chaitanya is traveling through South India that he encounters uh, a Buddhist and his followers, and uh, we can uh, can read a little bit. So beginning with, uh, just a moment, <laughs> beginning with Mahdi chapter 9, text 46. When the non-believers heard of the erudition of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they came to him with great pride, bringing their disciples with him. One of them was a leader of the Buddhist cult and was a very learned scholar. To establish the nine philosophical conclusions of Buddhism, he came before the Lord and began to speak. Although the Buddhists are unfit for discussion and should not be seen by Vaishnavas, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu spoke to them just to decrease their full pride. Tarka Pradhana Buddha Shastra Navamate the scriptures of the Buddhist cult are chiefly based on argument and logic, and they contain nine chief principles. Because Shichaitanya Mahaprabhu defeated the, B- the Buddhists in their argument, they could not establish the cult. Um, there's, a, there's a lengthy purport, and uh, I'll get into that uh, a little later, I'll just, uh, and where, where all these nine uh, points are presented and defeated the teacher of the buddhist cult set forth the nine principles but Sri chaitanya mahaprabhu broke them to pieces with his strong logic all mental speculations and learned philo- learned philosophers were defeated by Sri chaitanya mahaprabhu and when the people began to laugh the buddhist philosophers first felt both shame and fear the buddhists could understand that lord Sri chaitanya mahaprabhu was a Vaishnava, and they returned home very unhappy later however they began to plot against the lord Having made their plot, the Buddhists brought a plate of untouchable food before Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and called it Mahaprasadam. When the contaminated food was offered to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, a very large bird appeared on the spot, picked up the plate in its beak and flew away. Indeed, the untouchable food fell upon the Buddhist, and the large bird dropped the plate on the head of the chief Buddhist teacher. When it fell on his head, it made a big sound. The plate was made of metal, and and when its edge hit the head of the teacher, it cut him, and the teacher immediately fell to the ground unconscious. When the teacher fell unconscious, his Buddhist disciples cried aloud and ran to the lotus feet of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu for shelter. They all prayed to Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, addressing him as the Supreme Personality of Godhead himself and saying, Sir, please excuse our offense, please have mercy upon us and bring our spiritual master back to life. The Lord then replied to the Buddhist disciples. You should all chant the names of Krishna and Hari very loudly, near the ear of your spiritual master. By this method, your spiritual master will regain his consciousness. Following Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's advice, all the Buddhist disciples began to chant the holy name of Krishna congregationally. When all the disciples chanting the holy, chanted the holy names, Krishna, Rama, and Hari, the Buddhist teacher regained consciousness and immediately uh, began to chant the holy name. Uh, So purport, Srila Siddhanta Saraswatthi Thakur comments that all the Buddhist disciples were actually initiated by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the chanting of the holy name of Krishna. And when they chanted, they actually became different persons. At that time, they were not Buddhists or atheists, but Vaishnavas. Consequently, they immediately accepted Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's order. Their original Krishna consciousness was revived and they were immediately able to chant Hare Krishna and begin worshipping the Supreme Lord Vishnu. It is the spiritual master who delivers the disciples from the clutches of Maya by initiating, initiating him into the chanting of the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. In this way, a sleeping human being can revive his consciousness by chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hari Ram, Hari Ram, Ram, Ram Ram, Hare. In other words, the spiritual master awakens the sleeping living entity to his original consciousness so that he can worship Lord Vishnu. This is the process of Diksha or. Initiation. Initiation means receiving the pure knowledge of spiritual consciousness. Anyway, it carries on, but then it is said that uh, Radha's disciples were initiated by Krishna Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and they were in turn able to initiate their so called spiritual master. The so called spiritual master of the Buddhist was actually in the position of a disciple, and after his disciples were initiated, by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they acted as his spiritual masters. Um, so, is the mercy described of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Um, to backtrack a little bit on, uh, on Buddhism, later on we'll get into the details of this, uh, this Chaitanya uh, this encounter of Lord Chaitanya and his Buddhist, uh, and the Buddhist and his disciples. Uh, But first, let us uh, embark on a general, uh, some general description of Buddhism. Um, We find that Buddha appears approximately at at 500 BC. And uh, then Buddha, obviously uh, attained enlightenment in Bodgaya. Bodgaya is in Bihar, just uh, next to, uh, to Gaya, uh, where Sichitani Mahabu also went and received initiation. So uh, it's uh, from Bodh Gaya, it's, uh, It it's relatively easy to go into the north of Bengal. So uh, later, about a few hundred years later, uh, the Maurya dynasty was ruling. And uh, at that time, there's the emperor Ashok. And he is of course the, uh, the main proponent of, of Buddhism and spread it really like all over India. Now, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, I have a map here of the, uh, of the Mauryan empire and uh, it was uh, very vast. Uh, the emperor Ashok, he actually ruled more of India uh, than, than so many others in the age of Kali. No one uh, no one had control over such a large area of India. And he, uh, his rule was extending not only in the Magadha district. We remember that uh, Jarasanda is known as the king of Magadha and Magadha is Bihar, and also a part of Bengal. And uh, so not only was he ruling there, but the Emperor Ashok, his rule, extended far into West India, and way beyond the Indus River, and even beyond the kingdom of, uh, of Gandhara, which is Af- Afghanistan. So he was uh, ruling way into Afghanistan, and looking at this map, he was also uh, ruling Balochistan and even a portion of what would be now considered uh, Iran. So we can see that on the Western side, his influence was really like extended very far. On the East, he, uh, it included uh, even Assam and, uh, and uh, yeah, Bengal, Meghalaya so uh and towards the south uh, towards the south uh, at least as far as 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 brahmagiri let me see that like the very southern tip kanchi and and kaviri is excluded and, but uh ashok's influence was uh, was tremendous and i remember visiting uh visiting Afghanistan in, uh, in the 70s and that uh, we went to the Valley of Bamiyan. And in the Valley of Bamiyan, Buddhists had carved out uh, statues of, of the Buddha, deities of the Buddha, which were like out of the rock, which were 35 meters high. And they'd like just carved it out of like a mountain wall and they were enormous and inside there was a staircase so i went up that staircase and then you would come up into like a a cave-like room with openings to the outside and they were the eyes of the buddha so you could stand there and look at the world through the eyes of the buddha these days these uh these world wonders are no longer there because they've been uh, blown up by the taliban such as uh, <laughs> such as life is temporary in the material world and uh, anyhow so the influence of emperor ashok is significant and uh, ashok then uh, appearing uh, before bc uh, the, the Mauryan. Dynasty is is ruling basically from uh, uh, three hundred to uh, two hundred fifty BC, um, and uh, Ashok then during that time uh, went into Bengal and in Bengal he, uh, he he established several stupas and memorials with inscriptions that. Uh, Buddha had been in these places. So in this way, we see uh, the beginning of Buddhism in Bengal. Uh, Buddhism, of course, uh, as we understood from Ashoka's map, extended very far over India. And uh, also in the uh, kingdom of Kalinga, which is also known as Utkal, or is known as Puri, and in Puri also, um, also, uh, blurred, uh, the the Buddhist influence was was, was very strong. Uh, it is said in the in the third century, a Chinese traveler finds that everything in uh, in uh, in Kalinga is just uh, completely dedicated to uh, to Buddhism. Um, let me just see if I then I have here uh, from a book called Sri Ksetra from uh, Sundarananda Vinod, a disciple of uh, Srila Bhaktisiddhanta what It said. As Buddhism began to flourish in India, the holy places of the Aryans started converting into Buddhist monasteries. What to speak of this? Even almost all the symptoms of Vedic religion began to be extinct. The rule of the Buddhists extended into the kingdom of Utkal as well. As a result of that, for a long time the glorious Lord Vishnu who appeared in a wooden form and Sanatana Dharma remained non-mifested in the world. With a desire to pollute the holy places and the predominating lord of the holy places of the Aryans, the Buddhists might have established dantapit, or tooth, and might have addressed the deities of Sri Jagannath, Sri Baladeva, and Sri Subhadra as Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. What to speak of this, imitating the Aryans culture, the Buddhists might have even held a Ratyatra festival of the three deities, just like Sri Jagannath Dev's Ratyatra. During the fifth century, the famous traveler, Chinese traveler, uh, Han, visited Pursa at Sotam Ksetra and happily wrote that Buddhism was prevalent at that place without any pollution and there was no tinary, uh of the Brahmanas evident. From this it is understood that because uh, that the, the Buddhists were very powerful in that era. Um, that's from page 57. Um, continuing on that page, And um, in the 7th century, uh, Acharya Sankara established a mat called the Bhogavardhana or Govardhan near the temple of Sijakarnatev. During the 7th century, another Chinese traveler, Wan Tsang, wrote uh, after visiting Purisitam, at that time, the tooth of Buddha was taken to Simhala, uh, that's Sri Lanka, and that holy place became completely polluted by the brahmanas. So uh, we can see that the influence of Sankaracharya was very strong. Now, we have earlier discussed that at the time of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, um, approximately 50% of uh, Orissa was, uh, uh, was tribal. Right? And then there was the... Uh, the, the, the rigid, smarter Brahmana culture surrounding the worship of Lord Jagannath. So we see that uh, Brahmanism was, was virtually driven out um, and that uh, Buddhism really began to take hold in Orissa. Uh, in, uh, in um, I have earlier discussed how there was a group of uh, of, uh, of so-called Vaishnavas, uh, an apasampradaya, who claimed a connection with Sri Caitanya Mahaprabhu as his friends, known as the Panchasaka, and that the leader of the Panchasaka, they would call themselves the Five Friends. The leader was Jagannath Das, and Jagannath Das wrote a Oriya Bhagavat, and in that Oriya Bhagavat he wrote uh, a 13th canto. And the philosophy in that 13th canto is Sunyavad. So the philosophy of uh, uh, of, of uh, Buddhism survived and uh, and made it into the Uriya Bhagavad, which is still the predominant version of the Bhagavad in Orissa. And the Panchasakas were prolific writers, and they had a period of... 150 years in uh, Oriya history, which is dominated by their literary works. So they had a huge impact. I have discussed them earlier on in detail, and we know, just one reminder, that Jagannath Das went to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, wanted to read to him from his uh, Bhagavad translation, and Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says, uh, You know, I'm not qualified to hear it, you're such a great scholar. Your commentary is Atibadi. Uh, and Atibadi means too great. So then from that day on, Jagannath took that as an honorific title and became Jagannath too great. Jagannath Atibadi, which is like pretty interesting. And Jagannath Atibadi then, he was, uh, uh, um, well, uh, it created a whole cult. And at the time of Akshayenātukur, there were fifteen thousand Atibaris, both in Orissa and Bengal. So, uh, quite, uh, quite something. Anyway, in the context of Buddhism, we see how much Buddhism had an impact in uh, in Orissa, and uh, we'll go back to. Uh, to our document earlier on, yes. Yeah, so then we discussed how during the uh, Maurya dynasty, that is uh, still BC, right, uh, that uh, Buddhism really, uh, really spread and became very much established. And in Bengal, um, it was particularly prominent because uh, subsequent rulers right, were not able to retain the, uh, the land holdings of uh, of Ashok. Right? So uh, subsequent rulers, they were more ruling on the northern side of, uh, of India. And there's a whole list given and actually the Srimad Bhagavatam um, gives us in the 12th Canto uh, a list of the dynasties of uh, of each of Kali. Um, I will not now read the whole list of, of dynasties at the age of Kali, but it does correspond with uh, with history. And there's um, there's a lot of stories of uh, ministers or servants killing their king and taking the position of the king themselves. And one one particular king uh, in the Shishunaga era, he had a uh, a son with a Sudra wife, and somehow or other, that son was extremely powerful, and he established himself as a ruler, and he started up the uh, Nanda Empire, and he was a terror to the Kshatriyas. And it said from bhagavatam says from there on only Sudras ruled. bhagavatam gives a whole list of like Sudra rulers, and then it also starts to get it. It mentions. The Maurya dynasty, which is uh, the dynasty uh, uh, of Ashoka, I said, it mentions the Gupta Empire, uh, King Chandragupta, uh, established by uh, Chanakya Pandit. And uh, so the Buddhism continued to carry on during these various dynasties, although it may not have been uh, so prominent, but uh, there was, it it, it was declining, but uh, Ashok had very thoroughly established it. So uh, from the 4th to the 6th century, under the Gupta Empire, the empire was a Vaishnav empire, but they were very tolerant and they tolerated uh, Buddhism also, and uh, it seems that there were political alliances. Right, that it wasn't just tolerance out of philosophy, but more tolerance for the sake of keeping the peace rather than uh, constantly being absorbed in a, in a civil war. From, um, then, then we followed um, by, after the Gupta Empire, it, it really continues with the uh, Pala Empire. Now, the Pala Empire is is an empire in which uh, sankaracharya appeared and he began to drive out in the 8th century he began to drive out the uh, the the buddhism across the borders uh, pretty much throughout india but in bengal his influence was considerably less in pushing out the buddhists and the buddhism stayed still quite active in Bengal, although on the decline, but the uh, there were still the kings in the in the Pala Empire remained dedicated to Buddhism in Bengal, and and they ruled uh, basically until the Sena dynasty uh, took over, and the Sena dynasty just ruled for over a hundred years, and then in twelve hundred and four. Mohammed Bakhtiar comes and uh, as we discussed yesterday, just when the Sena king is taking lunch, comes in to sell his horses, but it turns out to be more than selling horses. And, and they just do a surprise attack on the palace and the city uh, on Laknoti. Uh, Laknoti was then the capital of, of Bengal under the Sena dynasty. Prior to that, the Sena dynasty had, had their uh, their headquarters in, uh, in Navadvip area, in Mayapur, as we know. So uh, that is uh, also extraordinary, uh, whatever may be. So Sena dynasty is actually uh, not ruling that long and outstead by Islam, which then goes uh, way into the 17th century. Uh, and then Islam is, uh, is gradually getting a greater grip on India. If you see like, like the history of Islam, I found this graph today, oh, uh, made by uh, Anman Talwar, uh, an IIT uh, graduate. And he did it uh, in a graph form, and he shows that like uh, from uh, from 720, there's Muslim influence in India, and they hold up to 10%, up to 5% of Indian territory, and then gradually it goes up. And by uh, the year 1300, they hold up to uh, 70, 10, 70% of India. And then they lose again, and, and at their very peak, Right. That's in the Mughal era. Era uh, up to uh, up to the British. At their very peak, they held eighty percent of India for a short time. Uh, so, in this way, anyway, Buddhist influence in in India uh, has had its impact on Bengal, and uh, it also had its impact. On the uh, on the philosophy of uh, of Vaishnavism, uh, because in in Buddhism, there is uh, there was Buddhist tantra, and it was known as Vajrayan Buddhism, uh, the vehicle of the of the thunderbolt, and uh, Vajrayan. Buddhism uh, was a tantric Buddhism. And that tantric Buddhism, uh, it was practiced, it, it, it appears that Nagarjuna, who was a very uh, big philosopher in, uh, in Buddhism, and it was he who uh, phrased the, uh, the, the concept of sunyavat or That everything is sunya. He he phrased that that particular term in his writings, and it's, it seems that what, that he was involved in Vajrayana Buddhism. Now, part of Vajrayana Buddhism, it it understands the the, the feminine as the active uh, principle of the universe, and it says then meditative and ritual practice is dedicated to Taras, wives or consorts of the Buddha or other deities. And uh, see that, that uh, which is basically, which later on made it into, into Vaishnavism and created all the, uh, all the Sahaja groups in, uh, in Bengal. Uh, and we see, like, uh, like, like this morning, I had a male visitor in my room, and I initiated him in the esoteric teachings, and told him that uh, that now he had to uh, realize his his uh, female identity, and that he, uh, and not only that. But that he should become pregnant, <laughs> and uh, yes, um, just uh, as as the as the wife or concerts of the Buddha, um, that was in Buddhism, and then uh, it's like of Brahman, of whatever of the of the male energy, the male deity. Anyway, that went quite far, and um, you can see, of course, how. Uh, how this Tantric philosopher, philosophy um, possibly uh, could have a, um, well, a resemblance of, uh, of the dual identity of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is also uh, simultaneously in a male and a female identity. Uh, because here he is, as a male trying to innerly experience the mood of Radharani, so it's uh, we can understand how they connected the the two, and then created some sort of uh, uh, external version of that uh, female nature and start to practice, uh, yeah, what is known as. Uh, um, left-handed uh, uh, tantric ritual uh, ritualistic sexual activity which became huge i mean in in the 17th century it was enormous and then it's interesting how that also um, that spilled over to uh, to muslims as well they also uh, they were fakirs and they also dressed up in saris and not just once, but a whole lifetime. And it just became—it's it's how they lived uh, in female dress, and uh, and and a similar uh, similar practices and so on. Uh, so then it's interesting that the uh, orthodox Brahmanas and the orthodox Muslims—they uh, kind of found each other as to. Uh, as both cooperating in, in driving out this unauthorized evil. So, anyhow, so that that is something about uh, the secrets of Tantra. Of course, not all Tantra. There is also Dakshinayi Tantra. Uh, the left-handed is Vamana Achar, and there's Dakshinayi Tantra. The Dakshinayi Tantra are just, uh, uh, are just, uh, scriptures that describe rituals for worship uh, the vedic literature also includes tantra various tantras and also vaishnava tantra and the vaishnava tantra is is basically describing how to uh, how to act in in worship and uh, vaishnava tantra is the kind of scripture that that comes back in Rupa Goswami's Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu in the Nectar of Devotion. And the Narada Pancharatra uh, is, is part of Vaishnava Tantra. So like this, we can... Uh, so yes, Buddhism, uh, exactly where and when uh, Tantric ritual entered into Buddhism, um, obviously, uh, it it uh, it doesn't seem to be part of the original uh, sermons of the Buddha, so it must have been picked up from from uh, from Vedic culture somewhere, uh, or offshoots thereof, or, or perverted reflections thereof. Uh, so yeah, ultimately, where the origin lies of so the Vamana archar, whether it is an offshoot of the of the greater Vedic paradigm or whether it's part of the we don't know but Buddhism made it made it big Um, so in Bengal with the uh, Pala dynasty uh, ruling till uh, till the beginning of the 12th century uh, Buddhists and being Buddhist we understand that Buddhism remained quite uh, quite present in Bengal much longer than in uh, in other parts of India and uh, but then under the Sena dynasty, they took a strong stance in driving out Buddhism. And it is said that uh, at the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda's preaching, there was still plenty of Buddhas, uh, Buddhists and eventually it was Bhadra who initiated 2,000 Buddhists. And with that, basically, Wiped Buddhism off the map. In in uh, after that, it, it 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 practically had no more presence in Bengal. Anyway, that is a little bit of history and uh, related to our movement. I mean, we can see how Virabhadra, somehow or other, uh, Virabhadra after Nishananda had, had preached just without discrimination and full of ecstasy. Virabhadra was kind of getting some structure into uh, Vaishnavism and uh, deciding who was in and out. And these Buddhists were all in and became Vaishnavas. Um, A little bit more about uh, Buddha himself. Uh, So uh, in Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, we find in the third chapter, We find a description that Krishna is the source of all incarnations. Eight Chamsa Kilapusa, Krishna, Stubhago, and Swayam. And then Krishna and Balaram are described as the nineteenth and twentieth incarnation of the Lord. And then the next is Buddha. And it says Tato Kalu Sambravite. Samo haya sudadisam Budo Namnan Jana Sutta Kikati Su that is Bhagavat Śrīmad-Bhāgavatam Bhagotam 1324. Then in the beginning of Kali Yuga, the Lord will appear as Lord Bula, Buddha, the son of Anjana, in the province of Gaya, just for the purpose of deluding those who are envious of the faithful taste. And then from the Patma Purana. Um, mm-hmm. Mayavadam asachasthram prachanam budam uccite mayevvitam devi kalo brahmanamurtina. Brahmanas chaparam rupam nirgunam vakshate maya sarvasvam jagato pyasya mohanartam kalo yuge. Vedanta tu Devi Jagatam The Mayavad philosophy, Lord Shiva, informed his wife Parvati, is impious, asyhat sastra. It is covered Buddhism. My dear Parvati, in Kali Yuga I assume the form of Brahmana and teach this imagined Mayavad philosophy. In order to cheat the atheist, I describe the supreme personality of God to be without form and without quality. Similarly, in explaining Vedanta, I described the same Mayavad philosophy in order to mislead the entire population uh, toward atheism by denying the personal form of the Lord. Uh, so, because this, uh, this Buddhism had taken people away from the Vedas, Buddha Buddhism had... Uh, buddha had preached because people were engaged in animal sacrifice and therefore buddha had uh, had denied the authority of the vedas it said vedas are simply the products of man and therefore not divine in origin and therefore not absolute and meet in Jai from jayadev uh, Nindasi Yagyavidir Ridriya Kesavadrita Jai Jagatare O Keshava, O Lord of the Universe, O Lord Hari, who have assumed the form of Buddha. all glories to you, O Buddha of compassion heart, you decry the slaughtering of poor animals performed according to the rules of Vedic sacrifice, Dasavatar Stotram from Jayadev Goswami. So because animal sacrifice was excessively going on in the name of Vedic sacrifice and abused, then Buddha took people away from the uh, Vedas and from Vedic sacrifice and established ahimsa. Then Sankaracharya teached a philosophy that was very close to Buddhism, but yet accepted Vedic authority and in this way brought people back to Vedic authority. And then we see how Ramanuja and Madhava are bringing people back to Vaishnavism and then finally Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the full understanding um, with achencha beta bedha um, I'll go now back to the Chaitanya Charitamrita um, where we uh, left off and we'll discuss these... Uh, these uh, these verses and the the nine principles that we discussed before. Hmm. Here it also said that, you know, one should not even, a Vaishnava doesn't want to even see a Buddhist. Uh, um, So the reason for this is basically this, because uh, said, well, my part is similar to Buddhism. So, both the uh, Mayavadis and the Buddhists are denying the Supreme Personality of Godhead. They deny uh, the abode of the Lord and they deny devotional service. Then, and, and the Buddhists is, is denying anything. Right? Just take it a step further. The uh, Mayavadis is Brahma, Satya, Jagadmitya. The Brahman is real and universe is false. Uh, and then uh, Buddhists say, Brahman is false as well. It's all false, it's all Sunya, there's nothing. So it is even even more abominable uh, than Mayavad, but very similar in, in, in the sense that it enjoy it. It denies what the Vaishnavas are holding in the highest esteem. Krishna his eternal abode, uh, which is you know his his eternal pleasure pastimes, and uh, and devotional service, which is the saving grace in this world. Therefore, uh, we see that uh, Lord Nichananda was. Uh, when in dealing with Buddhists a kind of uh, how shall I say uh, well yet a kind of a very outspoken way of dealing with them Uh, because when the when Lord Nichananda met Buddhists in Kashmir he requested them for some water and they didn't reply and subsequently Lord Nichananda just uh, kicked them in the face which uh, was, uh, well, very graphic. What shall I say? Oh. All right, so, so far, I have not entered into uh, into some real substance other than uh, I, I've described historical context. I've described uh, uh, Chichitanya Mahaprabhu meeting the Buddhists. Um, I'm also not, like, going to enter into a complete... Uh, philosophical uh, display of, uh, of of buddhism i'm just basically going to stay with the uh, uh with the display of, of of philosophical discussion of the chaitanya charitamrita um basically there is there is uh the uh in Buddhism, there is the Theravada Buddhism, and there is the uh, Mahayana Buddhism. Theravada Buddhism is basically uh, only sticking to the sermons of uh, of, of Buddha, and uh, and Mahayana is also uh, entering into commentaries that have been. Uh, Based on that, Mahay it is Theravada that originally started, and Theravada is now very limited. It's still present in in uh, in Sri Lanka and in some places of India, but it is uh, outside of India. It's all Mahayana. Hmm. the The power of Buddhism uh, lies in the fact that Buddha. Is recognized in the uh, in in the Vedic scripture, including Srimad Bhagavatam, as an incarnation, an avatar of Vishnu, and that he is a, a Shakti avesh avatar, but still he's a, considered an avatar of Vishnu, and therefore, uh, when Buddha said, "Worship me, uh, and do not worship the Vedas." then still there was a transcendental connection, and that's where the potency of Buddhism lies. In Budgaya, then, also, there is, is a temple. Uh, there are many temples in Budgaya from all uh, various countries have their temples there. And, uh, like, there's a Japanese temple, uh, very clean Zen. There is a Chinese Buddhist temple, uh, kind of full of all kinds of... Deities and this and that, and very busy. There is Thai temple, uh, very kind of colorful, uh, but uh, and that's really like super clean Zen Buddhist stuff of, of Japan. So Buddhism is well uh, represented in Bodhgaya. and there is a, a temple uh, in the in the in, where Buddha is being worshipped. And it has two doors, and on the one side, the Buddhists are worshipping, and on the other side, the Hindus are worshipping Buddha. And they're both doing puja, because after all, uh, and he's accepted as an incarnation of Krishna. Leaving that aside, uh, we'll go now to these uh, nine principles that were uh, and they are addressed, and in the purport, I have sort of uh, adjusted it a little bit because they first gave, in the purport, first first uh, gave the nine principles, and then later in the purport, uh, a response to them. So I thought it was a little complicated for my mind. So what I did is I, I took the, uh, the thesis, the point, Uh, where Buddhist philosophy is presented, and then the comment from the purport on it. Uh, So we'll read it and discuss it. Uh, One, the creation is eternal. Therefore, there's no need to accept the creation. Mm. So uh, then the answer or the counter argument to that. Their first principle is that the creation has always existed. But if this were the case, there could be no theory of annihilation. Uh, The Buddhists maintain that annihilation or dissolution is the highest truth. If the creation eternally exists, there's no question of dissolution or annihilation. Uh, In order to reduce everything to to sunya, yes, there has to be an an annihilation. There cannot be any... uh, any any other uh, uh, any other uh, dynamics, right? uh, because it it has to be zero. But if the creation then is eternal, that would be a contradiction. That is the point they make. So uh, it says. This argument is not very strong, because by practical experience we see that material things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, The ultimate aim of the Buddhist philosophy is to dissolve the body. This is proposed because the body has a beginning. Similarly, the entire cosmic manifestation is a gigantic body, but if we accept it always exists, there can be no question of annihilation. Therefore, the attempt to annihilate everything in order to attain zero is an absurdity. Okay. Uh, the purport continues and speaks about uh, creation, and uh, but I, I'm not entering into that now. Two, this cosmic manifestation is false. So, the Buddhists argue that the world is false. Uh, but this is not valid. The world is temporary, but it's not false. As long as we have the body, we must suffer the pleasures and pains of the body, even though we're not the body. We may not take these pleasures and pains very seriously, but they're factual nonetheless. We cannot actually say that they're false. If the bodily pains and pleasures were false, the creation would be false also, and consequently no one would take very much interest in it. The conclusion is that the material creation is not false or imaginary, but it is temporary. Um, So basically... Here we see that Sankara Acharya is, is, uh, is preaching the same philosophy. Uh, Jagadmitya, the material world, is, is, is false. Uh, that means that all suffering, if the material world is false, then all suffering is imaginary. Everything is just simply a, uh, uh, a product of the mind. Uh, but then, even the mind is false. And so Buddhism, uh, I remember uh, my days when I was reading some Buddhist literature and I came to this uh, work of uh, a Greek Buddhist, a Greek philosopher who has written extensively on Buddhism named Nikos Kazantzakis. And he just brought out this point that uh, all came from nothing. And then all again returned to nothing. And it sounded very uh, yeah, mystic, but how all comes from nothing is, is still a, uh, it's very puzzling actually. I mean, it's a big jump and there's no explanation. What is the reason? There's no rationale why from nothing suddenly all came about. Uh, what's the point? Right. And, and how and why? Nothing. So their Buddhism is not very developed. Easy to say, all came from nothing. So it's one thing to focus on annihilation and on the uh, uh, just annihilating the entire uh, material energy. That's fine. Right and saying therefore everything is imaginary therefore suffering is imaginary therefore uh, Whatever material entanglement all imaginary and will just attain the state of complete freedom complete env- emptiness Nirvana, but why does everything come from Nirvana? No answer right. No, uh, and how? does it happen? Nothing. Whereas we we read in Bhagavatam, that uh, the Supreme Lord exists before the whole material creation, right? and um, creation comes into being, and the purpose of it, for it coming into being, is... Uh, to provide for living beings who want to use their minute independence to be independent of the Supreme Lord. And then Sa'ik Sata, the Lord glances on the Pradhana, and the Mahatattva comes about and is impregnated with living beings, and the whole material world comes into being. So there's a rationale, there's a creation, there's there's some logic, uh, but in Buddhism this is, is very absent this point. So... Um, Three, I am is the truth. The Buddhists maintain maintain that the principle I am is the ultimate truth. But this excludes the individuality of I and you. If there's no I and you or individuality of different beings, then there's no possibility of argument. The Buddhist philosophy depends on argument, but there can be no argument if one simply depends on "I am." And uh, well, this 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 uh, certainly uh, resonates with me because uh, when I was uh, traveling throughout India, uh, I had some interest in Tibetan Buddhism uh, because it's not only. Uh, dealing with sunyavad but it it really deals like with an uh, an afterlife and they gave like there's the tibetan book of the dead which describes 55 days where the living being goes through a whole experience after death and in in a subtle form and and he gets uh different confrontations Right, with various deities, first different mandalas, different forms, first peaceful mandalas and then uh, finally ghastly mandalas. And each time he has to just realize that all this is just false. That's basically the Tibetan Book of the Dead and that he should just focus on, on, on the white light, right? And then that these are all manifestation of the white light. So the white light is Brahman. Then so you come to Brahman, then the empty comes that even the white light is also false. So that's in, in a nutshell, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So I found that somehow or other, that Tibetan Book of the Dead, I had some interest in it. And it brought me to uh, the village where the Dalai Lama stayed. And I, uh, I visited there to see the culture and so on. Um, but there was a particular incident around prayer mills where a lama was spinning the prayer mills and and I was interested to speak to him. And I greeted him and he utterly ignored me. And I tried a few times to approach him and he acted as if I didn't exist. Now, according to the third point of the philosophy, I am... Uh, that was his philosophy. In his philosophy, I didn't exist. Right? Uh, whatever I was, was simply a projection of his mind. So at that point, I, uh, I didn't particularly feel like being a projection of his mind. Uh, so uh, it didn't make sense, you know, that I was a projection of his mind or was he a projection of my mind? Uh, that was a complicated uh, understanding. How are we here all as individuals uh, projecting other individuals who also feel that they are individuals and they're projecting, projecting others' existence? So if it's only I am, they're going there into, into an awkward space. And uh, yes, and then the Vaishnavas are arguing uh, that, uh, that, well, Buddhism is based on, on argument. It's just like they present a philosophy and they are just trying to argue on the basis of argument, establish their philosophy. But how is the process of establishing a philosophy based on argument valid when there's only I am? Uh, it's, it's like me giving a big lecture to a mirror, right? And it's like, you know, I'm trying to like convince this mirror, but it's not there. There's nobody there on the other side. Uh, of course, while I'm saying that, I'm speaking to a, vo- a phone, and I hope there's somebody there on the other side. Yeah. It is a bit awkward. Anyhow, um, so back to this, uh, this point. The, uh, the dialogue uh, indicates that there must be two. So any form of debate or trying to convince others by argument means two. So there, they point out, is a defect. Uh, okay, Buddhists have a repetition of birth and death. But at the same time, the Buddhists, they are not acknowledging the existence of the soul. So it's a little complicated to understand then what is reincarnating? If there's no soul, so there's reincarnation, very good. But what is it actually uh, that is reincarnating? What what remains then? That is uh, a question. Uh yeah. Someone posted something from cousin Zakis to help me, but where did it go? Oh a comment. They must have Googled it. I'm afraid of nothing. I'm hoping for nothing. I am free. Kazantzakis. Yeah, that's from... Uh, yeah, but... So I'm afraid of nothing. Uh, I hope for nothing. Yes, it's true. Uh, so Kazantzakis, my conclusion uh, in those days, when I was preoccupied with studying cousin at one point, I realized that, uh, yes, um, a lot of effort is there, but in the end, I get nothing. Right? He's not afraid of, of he's, I'm, I'm afraid of nothing. I'm also not getting anything. I'm getting nothing. Right? Um, when I was then with the Buddhists in in, uh, in the Tibetan village, I read... Prabhupada's Gita, after the encounter with that Buddhist Lama. And as I read there, I read about impersonalism versus personalism. And it explained that impersonalism gives us a level of liberation uh, from material suffering, but it doesn't give, which is the same in Buddhism, although the impersonalist thinks they are in Brahman, the Buddhism is in nirvana, which is all sunya, uh, according to, uh, to Bhagavatam they are attaining the uh, Viraja river, which is the river between the spiritual and the material world, between Haridam and Devidam, and the three modes of material nature are absent there, and that is the closest one could possibly get to void. So that's the abode where Buddhists could go if they attain perfection. Anyway, the point is this: is that when I read that, uh, when when I read that, uh, then uh, then I was uh, I, I saw a description that the uh, Buddhist or that the impersonal liberation was giving a sense of relief from suffering, and that was it. Whereas it described the happiness coming from bhakti as an eternal growing experience, right? And and that's what struck me. That was for me the tipping point of rejecting Buddhism and embracing Krishna consciousness. I said, okay, then that must be the truth. That's the greater concept now of course i can explain that in a little even uh, in a bit more detail how in chaitanya Charitamrita Adi rita lili four there is the des- description of the competition between the qualities of krishna and the love of radharani and how radharani is uh, is discovering more and more qualities for krishna of krishna and each time her love is then embracing the new quality of krishna and in this way her love increases then finds a new quality embraces that also now that's not only happening to radharani that's also happening to us that's happening to anybody in devotional service we each time discovering more and more and more about krishna and as a result our love for krishna is growing right and you know, it says even madhyam Adhikari begins to develop love for Krishna and in an uttama that is like fully flourishing love. So uh, our love is also growing, our attraction to Krishna is also growing in this way. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, the uh, Buddhist philosophy um, doesn't satisfy. There is, uh, there, there are There's repetition of birth and death, but no concept of soul. So how to deal with that? Uh, uh, Five. Lord Buddha is the only source of understanding the truth. Uh, Okay, you know, like, uh, uh, according to Lord Buddha's fifth principle, Lord Buddha is the only source for the attainment of knowledge. We cannot accept this, for Lord Buddha rejected the Vedic principles or the principles of Vedic knowledge. One must accept the principle of standard knowledge because one cannot attain the absolute truth simply by intellectual speculation. Um, uh, If everyone is an authority or if everyone accepts his own intelligence as the ultimate criterion, as is presently fashionable, the scriptures will be interpreted in many different ways, and everything, everyone will claim that his own philosophy is supreme. This has become a very great problem, and everyone is interpreting scripture in his own way and setting up his own basis of authority, yatamat tatapat. Now everybody and anybody is trying to establish his own theory as the ultimate truth. Okay, if we say on the fifth point, Lord Buddha is the only source of understanding the truth, um, then we're also appreciating that... Um, There's no, uh, of course, yeah, the Buddha says there is no God, right? Uh, So there's basically nothing, right? If we put uh, in opposing to that philosophy and understanding that there is a God, right? Then there's an important principle. If there is a God... Then uh, oftentimes we see um, how philosophers are seeing themselves as reaching up to the truth um, and trying to uncover what is the truth. That's a word, Buddha is the only source of understanding the truth. Um, But if there is a God, then we can acknowledge that there is also something coming from the Supreme Lord. It's not that there's only God who is a creator, God who is a controller, and then God is quiet when uh, when a worshiper is trying to approach him. And he's only silently watching. That would be a very awkward God, not a very uh, merciful God, not a God who is sentient, who has a heart? So, uh, rather, we can see the supreme lord is also reaching out to uh, to, the, to the living being who is trying to reach him, and that is uh, is is is, uh, is the Vaishnava understanding of uh, of the truth, and then. We say, and as the Supreme Lord is reaching out, he is also reaching out through various media. Uh, And he reaches out through prophets. He reaches out through deities. He reaches out through scriptures uh, or uh, his holy names. Like that, uh, we're seeing he is manifesting himself. Uh, Now, okay, this is philosophers has discussed it at, at, uh, at length you know how the uh, like Rudolf Otto how the nominous that is whatever comes from the spiritual realm manifests in the phenomenal in the uh, in this phenomenal world uh, so Buddha doesn't acknowledge that uh, because in Buddhism, there is no nothing is holy, because holy is not, because there is only nothing. Therefore, we must object, in, when it comes to Buddhism, about Buddhism appropriating the attributes that belong to the Vaishnavas. When they take the lotus flower, that is a symbol of aesthetics, and that doesn't belong to Buddhism. That belongs to personalism, because personalism is the philosophy of qualities, the philosophy of ecstatics, the philosophy of taste, the, and, and the, the lotus as a symbol of transcendence is is clearly a, a Vaishnav symbol which has been stolen by Buddhism. And we strongly object for Buddhism utilizing these terms because it's false all aesthetic sense. So it's putting like bait on a hook, uh, but actually they don't acknowledge any aesthetics. So all the aesthetic symbols in Buddhism are not theirs to use. Anyway, that's my argument. Six, the principle of nirvana or annihilation is the ultimate goal. The Buddhists theorized that Annihilation or nirvana is the ultimate goal. Annihilation applies to the body, but the spirit soul transmigrates from one body to another. If this were not the case, how can so many multifarious bodies come into existence? Okay, it's an argument based on uh, transmigration. Um, Later in the argument, Robert quotes Bhagavad Gita, one who knows the transcendental nature of my appearance and activities does not upon leaving this body take his birth again in this world, but attains my eternal abode. This is the highest perfection. To give, us one, to give up one's material body and not to accept another, but to return home back to Godhead. It is not that perfection means one existence becomes void or zero. Existence continues, but if we possibly want to annihilate the material body, we have to accept a spiritual body, otherwise, there can be no eternality for the soul. All right, so sometimes we see that the arguments are not directly defeating the point, but they offer a better alternative. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it's not like point for point in a debate where you could say now we have systematically defeated that the principle of Nirvana or an annihilation as the ultimate goal is false but uh, there is a uh, obviously a description of a spiritual world full of its uh, its uh, eternal variety and eternal enjoyment given as, as an alternative to nirvana, which is of a superior nature. Seven, the philosophy of Buddha is the only philosophical path. We cannot accept the theory that the Buddhist philosophy is the only way, for there are so many defects in that philosophy. Perfect philosophy is one that has no defects, and that is Vedanta philosophy. Nor can one point out any defects in Vedanta philosophy, therefore we conclude that Vedanta is the supreme philosophical way of understanding the truth. Okay, well, that would be then a time for a Vedanta debate, and of course, Sankaracharya took on that debate and successfully uh, drove out Buddhism from uh, from India. I, I'm uh, I'm not uh, in this lecture taking that up. Maybe later, I'll write something on it. Uh, The Vedas are compiled by human beings. According to the Buddhist cult, the Vedas are compiled by ordinary human beings. If this were the case, they would be not authoritative. Okay, but that would be considered a circular argument. Um, So, from the Vedic literatures, we understand that shortly after the creation, Lord Brahma was instructed in the Vedas. Yes, well, okay, so there's the Vedic account of the Vedas. Um, uh, really, and the Vedic account gives its own history of coming from the uh, of being revealed. Uh, uh, that could of course be be false. that is certainly possible. but uh, then vedic uh, the Vedic knowledge can also produce results, right and in this way, it's not just uh, theoretical philosophy. Philosophy is, is not just something uh, for men of letters. Uh, philosophy is not just something that is uh, meant for, uh, for killing some time and debating different views. Philosophy has a direct bearing on a way of life and that way of life is ultimately going to produce certain results so the vedic way of life is is a very broad way of life the essence of the vedic li- way of life uh, as it has been uh, uh, explained is the there is karmakanda kanda jnana kanda upasana kanda or the temporary ritual, which gives temporary results, karmakanda, jnana kanda, the section of the Vedas looking for liberation, um, and ultimately, the the bhakti element in in, in, in the Vedas. Now, the bhakti is, is what is taught by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teachings is sometimes described by scholars, scholars as a very emotional feature of, uh, of a Vedic uh, interpretation, uh, the emotional way of, uh, yes, but it's not just emotional uh, in a sense of like uh, the practitioners are uh, practicing their religious ritual in a very emotional way, uh, just as there are Christians who speak in tongues. We have... An emotional branch of Hinduism, where the followers are just like in a very emotional way uh practicing their religious ritual no it is about happiness about overwhelming emotions of happiness bliss which is the result of of uh of spiritual practice right Ultimately, spiritual practice must translate into happiness. And then we see overwhelming happiness, waves of happiness. And in this way, uh, uh, following the aphorism, Anandamaya bhyasat, that the purpose of existence is to experience happiness. All right, so the last point, pious activities, showing mercy to others, and so on, are advice. It is stated that mercy is one of the qualities of a Buddhist, but mercy is a relative thing. We show our mercy to a subordinate or to one who is suffering more than ourselves. However, if there's a superior person present, the superior person cannot be the object of our mercy. Rather, we are the object for the mercy of the superior person. Therefore, showing compassion and mercy is a relative activity. It's not the absolute truth. Uh, Apart from this, we we also must know what actual mercy is. To give a sick man something forbidden for him, to eat is not mercy, rather it's cruelty. Unless we know what mercy really is, we may create an undesirable situation. If we wish to show real mercy, we will preach Krishna consciousness in order to revive the lost consciousness of human beings, the living entity's original consciousness. Since the Buddhist philosophy does not admit the existence of the spirit soul, the so-called mercy of the Buddhist is defective no existence of the spirit soul, no existence of Krishna, no existence of spiritual world, no existence of a devotional service, no existence, right? No existence of happiness, no existence of suffering, yay! But also, no, exer- no existence of happiness. There, we see uh, a major defect. Um, so, I felt for completeness, I had to, say I had to deal with Buddhism. I know for some, it may have been a bit dry, but we see it does have a bearing on Lord Chaitanya's movement uh, in, in the Sahajism that surrounds Lord Chaitanya's movement. And that came, that sprung up in Bengal and that uh, drew authority on Lord Chaitanya. Um, it is Krishadas Kaviraj Goswami uh, and the six Goswamis who are very clearly uh, establishing what is Chaitanya Vaishnavism uh, if we now if in Bengal there's a huge landscape of all kinds and orissa all kinds of people follow Chaitanya and in this way and that way and all that uh, Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswami put a fence around that Remember the discussion on the Bhakti Kalpataru. And so we also see how the tantric influence comes in um, via the Buddhists, and and we see that ultimately um, um, we are diametrically opposed to Buddhism and in personalism, for that matter. Thank you so much for being with us again, and you are most welcome to join us again tomorrow. Hare Krishna.